Hello, and welcome to Here's What I Can Say, episode four. Dr. Greg here. I'll be talking about the immune system, vaccines, and masks. So the immune system is broken down into two major parts. There's the adaptive immune system that involves B cells and T cells, antibodies, and is involved in long-term immunity development. And then there's the innate immune system. This is the part of primarily cells that float around detecting things that are yours, that your body produces, and trying to find things that are not yours, that may have come from a virus or bacteria or some other potential pathogen. The innate immune system, if it comes in contact with something from outside the body, will try to kill that thing, recruit immune cells from nearby by the release of what we call cytokines, which are just proteins that activate receptors on other cells to make them do specific things. The function of that allows for the rest of the immune system to get involved and prepare itself in the future if it comes across that outside potential pathogen again. This is especially useful when it comes to developing vaccines. We'll just go right into it. So with vaccines, they were just some background. They were originally like the general idea of a vaccine was discovered back in 1796. Uh, a guy named Ed Jenner noticed how milkmaids were for some reason not getting smallpox. And if they did get smallpox, their experience was not life-threatening. And they found that what was probably causing this was milkmaids were milking cows that might have had cowpox. And exposure to cowpox was not going to make you as sick because the cowpox infection was only good at really killing or infecting cows and because smallpox and cowpox were closely enough related the immune system responding and adapting to that exposure allowed it to sort of cross-react with smallpox. Unfortunately it took 200 years after learning that before we really eradicated smallpox as a pathogen on the planet. Since that discovery, we have found ways to develop vaccines. So the technology has developed to go beyond just what we've noticed in the cowpox, smallpox overlap. We found ways to recreate the same virus, but decrease its ability to cause a dangerous life-threatening infection. So there are uh, what we call attenuated viruses and then we have ways to break down the virus or bacteria into mostly the parts that your body's gonna come in contact with first. So for the coronavirus, the spike protein that it uses to bind to your cells and then enter your cells to replicate is, is a major target because it's ubiquitous on the outside of, of the virus itself and it is necessary for the virus to be able to infect you. So what a good target that would be. Now, there's, at this point, six current clinical trials testing the efficacy of potential viruses. 
and there's 80 that are in what we call preclinical phases that are not quite in human clinical trials, but uh, the development is, is, is ongoing, and there's a lot of different groups doing their best to find something that might actually work. There's plenty of challenges. There, the, you need to make sure that the surface proteins can actually get to a B cell that will notice so it can start to make a better immune response than its initial antibody development discussed in episode two that you slowly start to get a higher binding affinity to your target over time and that's over with B cell development. And so your initial, the IgM that you produce first is the antibody against the thing you are, are trying to protect yourself from is not as good at getting to its target and binding to its target as the IgG that you later produce that you have spent more time refining. And so you want to make sure that the, the target proteins that you introduce into the body through the vaccine are getting to the B cells and allowing the T helper cells to really get a truly robust reaction to the thing you introduce it to. Another challenge you're facing with vaccine development is the term of genetic drift. The, when the virus reproduces, it relies on your cells to, to duplicate its DNA as well as its other parts. And during that period, there's a possibility for errors to happen. And some of those errors might not cause a decrease in function um, and those genes can shift around just enough in their structure that they don't look the same to your immune system. So you need to be able to account for the possibility of these different variants of these targets. So we're seeing this possibly happen in some of the mild variation between cells or between viruses in different parts of the country. But uh, at this point, it's hard to say specifically if, if, we're, if we need to have multiple targets for the same thing. So how many uh, spike protein targets do we need to develop? Things like that. So in the current situation, we have at least six different groups who have found what seem to be an adequate amount of targets and accurate enough to do clinical trials on. As these trials are ongoing... We may see preliminary reports, but at this point there's nothing that's been released, so we just don't know how effective they are so far. Generally, we look to a look at a comparison of people who have been vaccinated versus people who have been unvaccinated and then see what's the difference between the two related to the rate of actual infection um, and comparing those who are vaccinated versus those who aren't this is where we get the term vaccine efficacy. Some examples with the measles, mumps, rubella, varicella vaccine, MMR, that got a lot of attention because somebody created, wrote a paper that made it sound like it was causing autism. Recently, they, they, there was a publication of a systematic review looking at over 138, or looking at exactly 138 studies, and in, including over 23 million patients who had been got, given this vaccine. Their findings were pretty impressive. They saw that the efficacy of the vaccine 
after multiple doses for, for measles and varicella was 95%, and for mumps and rubella, a little more modest in the mid 80%. But they found that if you give more than one shot over time, you increase the immune response and you increase the efficacy to a point of diminishing returns. That's ultimately why you get a certain number of shots depending on the thing you're getting the shot for. Um, it's really just that the data shows you need a couple of more, one or two more, depending on each one and the trials to see or to get the most out of the vaccine in the current condition it's in. The other helpful things that came out of the study was that there were no significant risks for irritable bowel disease and intellectual developmental disorders and autism spectrum disorder. The only thing that they noticed there being any amount of risk for with the MMR vaccine was febrile seizures. This was a rate of one out of 1,150 people who got the shot. And one nice thing about febrile seizures is, one, it doesn't mean you get a seizure disorder from having a febrile seizure. And two, you can treat them while they're not great um, and nobody should have to have a febrile seizure. It's a relatively low risk and it's a treatable, not long-term condition. When they develop vaccines, they often, in order to get a proper immune response, make use of these things called adjuvants. And adjuvants come in a lot of different flavors. Uh, one of the ways they do it is they attach the, the piece of the pathogen that they're introducing into the immune system and attaching it to a what they call a depot. And the depot is a molecule that loosely binds the antigen that you want the immune system to be prepared to fight off. And it's slowly released into the bloodstream and being released off of this depot, essentially giving you this long sustained exposure to the pathogen that allows for a better immune response as it's consistently coming into contact with the thing so it can keep building the immunity. And it secondarily, because the liver clears out anything you introduce into the bloodstream anyways, it decreases the amount of or volume of liver clearance so it, it allows more antigen exposure over time than if you didn't have that depot holding on to it it also adjuvants can also increase the recruitment of the local inflammatory cells local inflammatory cells are a major part of the immune system um, you can a good example is if you have inflammation around a cut that is a sign it's infected because that is, is showing that the immune system is very active in that really specific area. Other um, flavors of adjuvants can increase the activity of antigen-presenting cells. Antigen-presenting cells are, are floating around showing other parts of the immune system these outside particles so that you can hone in and better make your antibodies to fight that off in the future. It can also increase the amount of cytokine response, cytokines being those recruitment molecules that increase the activity of the immune system that will then recruit more immune cells to come into any specific area 
and start and just bolster the immune response that way. So in the current the current data on the COVID-19 vaccine, there really is none. Um, we just kind of know that they're they're doing it and there are trials underway, but I haven't seen any signs of preliminary data yet. Um, the other, in addition to making sure that the vaccine works at all, you also, you know, you need to optimize its abilities, um, making use of things like adjuvants to increase the immune response um, enough so that you get better immunity without causing negative side effects. Um, so you also do have to test for safety, making sure you don't overly stimulate the immune system and cause severe inflammatory responses that could be life-threatening. And then you, once that's all done, you then have to produce this in mass quantities to get available, which is partially why everyone projects it was from, even from the get-go, that it was gonna, it's gonna take 12 to 18 months to properly develop a vaccine. Those are some of the barriers in order to get there. Now going on to masks. So masks are an interesting topic. There's been a lot of Instagram videos and YouTube videos and weird infographics showing people with masks and not masks and various percentages. Um, but just to provide some background, so there's usually when people are talking about masks, they're talking about one of three. They're either talking about N95 masks, surgical masks, and cloth masks. So N95 is the one that we use in the hospital, um, especially when we're on droplet and or aerosol precautions. Um, these have been shown to block 95% of drops or droplets in the air that are less than 0.3 microns, which is quite small. The surgical masks seem to be rated to filter out things more like around the size of 10 microns, which are pretty large droplets. Cloth masks are, depending on the, the material, um, not specifically rated in any way, but there's various research looking at the size of the pores of the cloth mask. Ultimately, the more layers you have, the less holes you have to allow for the passage of things. So it's kind of like what we talked about with the Swiss cheese model is there's always going to be holes somewhere, but if you have enough layers, you won't get, you'll get less things passing through all those layers. So the rationale, this is also something that people seem to um, misrepresent when they're very anti, but also when they're very pro masks is that it's really the main point is just to to reduce unintentional and pre-symptomatic spread of the virus it's really not to it's not extremely protective but it's just to just decrease overall risk of causing infections in the general public um, a lot of the people i'll get to in a sec, but a lot of people who talk about masks are usually talking about them in the context of hospital settings. So for example, there's a, a commonly cited study that came out in 2015 showed that cloth masks were significantly inferior to other masks and other protective approaches. However, this doesn't, this is specific to hospitals and, and it's really a, it's a head to head trial and it doesn't give you any good information about whether or not it's 
better than not wearing a mask at all. This is that's one thing that that people who are using this study to prove their point are um, falsely attributing the findings to anything beyond the fact that compared to things like N95s or surgical masks, the cloth mask is inferior, but anybody with enough intuition about textiles and fabrics could probably tell you that that's most likely true. The The other thing is there's there's interesting studies that came out even before that they that showed that cloth masks can decrease droplet spread anywhere from 39 to 65%. So this is this is limited protection from a cloth mask, but uh, this this still reduces the amount of spread of, of droplets. And if everybody's properly wearing masks, you decrease this droplet spread. You might still be getting exposed to some, but you're likely not getting exposed to enough to overwhelm the immune system to cause a full-blown infection. There's a possibility that in, because of that, you could be essentially allowing the immune system to respond to just enough of the virus to start to develop a longer-term immune response, but not get a full-blown infection. This is purely speculative, though, so you can really only say that at best you get limited protection from a cloth mask based on the 2008 study. The other caveat about masks is besides this kind of inconclusivity of, of these studies and they're all kind of working in different settings the, another important piece to remember is there's just so much room for human error that improperly wearing masks uh, improperly fitted improperly placed people touching their masks too much things like that that make them significantly less effective when they were modestly effective at best even if used properly in the first place but that goes back to the old saying of don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Having some amount of benefit is better than having no amount of benefit. Thus, wearing a mask is most likely going to have a net positive effect, and not wearing a mask will have a net zero effect. The positive effect is going to be limited by proper use, etc. But no, one's at, no one should be at fault for trying to wear the mask and no one can be seen as too obnoxious regardless of what they're actually saying but no one should be <laughs> considered as too obnoxious for for choosing not to wear a mask this whole idea of of getting hyper carbic because of wearing a mask um is is it's not like carbon monoxide poisoning where it's sort of insidious and all of a sudden you're hypoxic and very sick with if you get hypercarbic while wearing a mask all you need to do is take off the mask the if you start to feel weird at all and you've been wearing a mask for a long time then it's time to get into a safe place to take off the mask that's really all it takes um people passing around that stuff like you're slowly poisoning yourself with the mask are again falsely representing the actual situation um I guess this leads to a bigger point that, you know, the in a situation where there's a lot of lack of definitive answers to a lot of these questions, people often try to err on the side of caution. And when you're trying to boldly 
definitively make any statements when it's clear that the scientific consensus isn't there. Um, you're just being you're just being intellectually dishonest with yourself and whoever you're talking to. The the other piece that I guess other people bring up is is this it's weakening the immune system to wear a mask or it's causing you to reinfect yourself while wearing a mask and there, there's really no way to substantiate those claims. Um, I don't know why it would weaken your immune system to limit your exposure to various particles while you go to the grocery store. Um, it's really, it's a drop in the bucket for all of the things that you're exposing yourself to on a daily basis. And ideally, you're not going to wear a mask all of the time. And even if so, that really isn't going to have much to do with weakening your immune system by wearing a mask. And you think about it this way. Surgeons wear masks while they work, and they sometimes sit in an OR for hours a whole day. And there's no data showing that surgeons have higher rates of infections, surgical techs, etc. No one's having worse infection rates or weaker immune systems because they're surgeons. What surgeons get is they, they get more kidney stones because they have to dehydrate themselves so they don't have to pee during surgery. But there's no phenomenon of note of surgeons because they wear surgical masks for several hours a day that they have weaker immune systems. So that, that claim is, is one, it's like not based on anything, and two, you can anecdotally disprove it by just that simple fact that, well, there's no data to show that that's a thing in the first place. Um, and if it were a thing, I think surgeons would be very aware of it and wanted to do something about it. And I know enough surgeons to know that no one's talking about that because it's not a thing. So again, this is intellectual dishonesty that people are doing to and or they're ignoring specific parts of the literature just to prove a point. Again, the point of this show isn't to have any hot takes, but it's to discuss what the actual data shows right now and what we actually do know. And right now, frustratingly, there's not a lot that we do know, but it's important to identify the things that we do and the things that we don't and where we're at as far as progress on addressing the things that we don't. I got a few other questions from from people who were curious about some different aspects of this, these topics. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting is mandatory flu shots for healthcare workers. Among healthcare workers, the prevalence of, of the flu was roughly 6.3% during, during any given flu season. There's a study that looked at, there were 29 studies that had looked over a span of about 97 separate flu seasons, and they found that individual infection rates um, among healthcare workers, um, or the, I guess the efficacy of the flu shots among healthcare workers for influenza type A was about 88%, and for flu B, it was about 89%, whereas the general population can range anywhere from 70 to 90% of protection from the flu shot. So there is good reason to think that mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers is beneficial as it decreases the infection rate among healthcare workers, which then is protective for the patients that they serve. Another question 
was uh, from a friend who was curious about the effect of or the value of having someone who's not an expert in healthcare or medicine involved in making decisions in healthcare. And while there it has its limits in its benefit, it is absolutely critical to have non-science, non-medicine trained individuals involved in the decision making because we need outside perspectives. For example, Anytime you're doing human study research, you have to have it approved by an institutional review board, and the institutional review board, also known as an IRB. The IRB always consists of some experts as well as some lay people who are not experts and may not have any background in science whatsoever, but you need them to be able to evaluate the ethics of your work and the potential usefulness of your work having the input of non-medical, non-science professionals is of value. Other elements of, of the issue there of having someone like, say, Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg involved is, you know, these, these people throw money at things and often it's to get money back, but there are times where that money can be taken by good people and used for good things. You can see the some of the money that Bill Gates put put towards preventing uh, malaria has been valuable to millions of people who are at high risk of getting malaria in endemic regions and in parts of Africa, for example. So there's net benefit from the money that that person used. You always have to, so you have to break those things down. And so you can't just say, oh, funded by person X who has these sort of problematic views so nothing that they can fund could ever possibly be good because the funding end up going to regular human beings who are scientists who dedicated their lives to their their subset of work and they're going to try to do good honest work the the way that information might get used or the way that might be interpreted can be can be skewed in different ways sure but Ultimately, this money goes down to regular human beings who are they're, they're doing their best to do ethical work. If it's unethical work, eventually we'll find those things out as we have safeguards in place and in ways to maintain ethical research. There's people you can read about all the time, issues in ethics and research where a professor might have done something to manipulate data just to get published. It quickly comes out and that research may get discredited. I mean, a good example is the article in Lancet that showed that the MMR vaccine, I just talked about how safe and effective was, was causing autism. And then when you look more with a little more scrutiny at the data they present, that there, it was quite dishonest and misrepresented data in order to prove a point. So one, you don't need billionaire influence for people to be unethical and billionaire influence doesn't mean you will be unethical. Therefore, immediately assuming that something that was funded by somebody whose ethics may be questionable will not imply that the work that comes out of it is going to be of any part of a nefarious plot. And generally because of how we do our best to maintain transparency in research, 
which has been slowly improving, especially over the last 10 years, as the need for transparency in clinical research and the desire amongst professionals and non-professionals alike to see more transparency in, in clinical, especially clinical research, um, are all safeguards that we've tried to put in place to maintain the good of the people that these things are trying to help. And another point is a friend asked about, you know, how do you talk to somebody who's on the fence about vaccines? And I think if somebody's on the fence about vaccines, this is a great opportunity to not only educate this person, but also educate yourself, relearn some of those, if you already learned about how the adaptive and innate immune systems work together and how vaccines work in general, you can revisit that science. You can There's unbiased publications like the Khan Academy on YouTube, and you can watch these uh, really nice, helpful videos that can teach you about the details that I gloss over here in this podcast on how these things work so that you can re-educate yourself and educate whoever you're talking to so they can better understand how those things work. Um, ultimately, if somebody has this sort of poison the well, no, there's no such thing as like a good product from a billionaire perspective, then, then that there's, there's no conceivable way to, to deal with that or to address that as those are essentially non-falsifiable claims at the end of the day, being, meaning you can't, no matter what try evidence you try to pull out to show that that's not a thing, um, is never going to be sufficient evidence to actually prove that point or disprove that person you're you're arguing against. So there are times where people are making points that you can address those questions, and then there are times where people are making points like, if somebody says, I'm not getting the vaccine because I'm not getting chipped, I can't really have a conversation with that person because they already believe that chips are going to be in the vaccine that are made to control your mind. And while the idea that we already have the technology to do something like that um, is already uh, beyond the actual development of our technology, is not even relevant if that person already believes that, because even if you did, they would be able to say, well, you don't know that. You know, there's a lot, you can always say, you can always lean on the, well, how do you know that? And when there, when it comes to the evidence to things like what I've been talking about in this episode, um, these are things that we do know. These are established truths by looking at the data or they're things that we're learning about and the data is showing different things, but we haven't looked at them in enough depth and breadth yet to have a more definitive answer. And when we do have more definitive answers, it's because we've had enough depth, because we had 23 million people and in this systematic review, etc. when we can actually establish truths or relevant truths in, in science. Another friend asked, uh, what, what kinds of things are we going to need to kind of get past the COVID situation, which is a great philosophical um, question because there's, you know, there's so much that we can do as far as developing vaccines and drug treatments. And back to a point I made in a prior episode is that we're, we're not very good at treating most viruses. We've, we've effectively been able to treat hepatitis C, HIV to some extent, and we can treat the flu directly. A lot of the other viral treatments we have are primarily symptomatic or they're based in vaccines. So we prevent the infection from ever happening. 
And that's honestly the best way that we have to fight off any viral infection at this point. Again, the remdesivir trials as one of the more promising potential drugs has, has have been fairly underwhelming so far. Um, it, it would be a little bit of a shock at this point based on the data released that remdesivir would be extremely helpful, but maybe I'm open to that being possible, but I'm not very optimistic about it at this point. Another question completely unrelated to all of this, the same friend asked, uh, is like, why do we, why do we drink so much? Which I think is, it's an interesting question because there's sort of some science and philosophy and human behavior. Um, this is mostly speaking from off the cuff is, is really alcohol is just so readily available. It's everywhere and, and it works pretty quick and it's pretty cheap. And so people who are trying to just change their state of mind because they're depressed or anxious or in, in poor living conditions, it's an easy way to escape or feel a little bit better. And then the, and then the sort of toxic side of, of drinking is that it, it's a self-perpetuating problem that once you get really excessive into drinking, it can then push your body into needing it. And that's when you get the, what we call physical dependence. And once you get physical dependence, your body kind of needs it, which is kind of partially why liquor stores were considered in most states essential um, because the physical body needed needs the alcohol and people who have an alcohol um, dependence, these people could die without it. They could die or go to the hospital and get treatment, but then this would overwhelm the system. So an easier way to sort of mitigate that is allow the alcohol to be available. That's, I think, mostly why drinking is, is so ubiquitous. I don't think there's any other... I guess that claim is primarily just anecdotal and based on maybe common sense and not necessarily any particular research on alcohol. I think that's a good place to stop. I want to spend some time in future episodes discussing more into the depths of things like immune boosting, uh, answering anybody else's questions, and I think it's also important to discuss uh, how, how physicians approach people's problems, um, kind of get in a little bit into the thought process of a, of a doctor when they first meet a patient and what they say, what the patient says, and what the doctor thinks during that interview um, in mostly broad terms because we're all thinking slightly different things specifically, but the overall uh, approach to problems is something that we learn in medicine uh, that we can, you know, use the umbrella term of clinical reasoning to explain. So I want to get into that in the future. Uh, if you have other things that you would like to know about or discuss in future episodes, you can email me at here's what I can say at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at here's what I can say. And please don't find me on any other social media platform. And please don't be mad at how dry and boring some of this can seem. I hope that it's a little better than if I got into some of the details that would be even more boring to hear. Well, I guess that's all for today. Thank you for listening, and that has been what I can say.